0: If you turn with me in your copies of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the Book of Psalms. That's the prose translation. And Psalm eighty-four. That's Psalm eighty-four. And our text this evening is just the first fourth four verses of this psalm. But I'd like us, as we're in in the Lord's will, to spend a number of weeks in this psalm, not to read the entirety of it. And so we'll read Psalm 84, uh, beginning there with a superscription. And beloved, once more hear the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. To the chief musician, upon gethit, a psalm for the sons of Korah. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, who, in whose heart are the ways of them who passing through the valley of Beka, make it a well. The rain also filleth the poles. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will grace, give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in me. Amen. May the Lord bless us richly this evening under this, his word. The book of Psalms is, of course, one of those portions of God's word that is endeared to most people, anyone who's encountered it. Um, it it's hard to find one that would say that they don't find themselves drawn to this part of, of the scriptures. And it makes good sense. Here you have, of course, some of the most sublime statements drawn out of the soul and presented to God. These these psalms are, of course, things of literary beauty. But, beloved, I would submit to you that in many ways, uh, in spite of the fact that, that this kind of affection makes sense for this altar, in many ways, I think it obscures really the power and also the profundity that we have here in this part of God's Word. What do I mean? Beloved, here in the Psalter, you and I are not just given a picture, an ancient picture, religious sentiment. I think that's often how the Psalms are read. This is not just a compilation of nice things to say that are of a pious sentiment. You have something far more profound. Beloved, in the Psalter, you and I are given a picture of the godly man, In other words, what you and I here see is not only a picture of one man, his own affections and dispositions toward God. Here you and I find a normative picture of what must be found in everyone who names the name of Christ. The Psalter is not simply a spiritual autobiography. It is the very pattern of those souls that have been made new by grace. In other words, beloved, what you and I have then in the Psalms, and Psalm 84 as well, is a picture of what true piety is. What true love for God looks like. I want us to approach Psalm 84 that way. Of course, we approach all of the Psalms in a like manner, but I want us to look at Psalm 84 in that way because in many ways, keeping that theme in front of us, that this is a normative picture of piety. This psalm has a number of correctives for our generation. We see that in a number of ways. I want you to notice, really from the superscription, that this is a psalm about the public worship of God. This is a psalm about the public worship of God. We see that because it's addressed, first of all, to the sons of Korah, If you remember back in the scriptures, these were those who stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high, says the chronicler. In other words, these are those men who were, by God's design, through David's appointment, supposed to lead the congregation of God's people in praise to God. It's addressed to them. This is a psalm addressed to those who would lead in public worship. But I want you to notice that in the very first verse, the subject matter is very clearly the same theme. It is public worship the psalmist is aiming at. How amiable are thy tabernacles? The psalmist goes on to say that he fainteth for the courts of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice, beloved, that those are two terms, tabernacles and courts, that we'll come back to in a moment. But, but you have a very similar sentiment in the previous section of Korite Psalms. If you just remember back in your mind to Psalm forty two and Psalm forty three, also part of a Korite section, it begins very similarly. Allow me just to read that to you briefly. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Our verse one again reads How amiable are thy tabernacles, my soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. They both begin with this earnest desire to be with the people of God in public worship. And the description is the same. This is a real longing that the psalmist has. This is not just about public worship. This is about the psalmist's affection in the public worship of God. But I want you to notice how this is described for us. The language is that of appearing before God. Appearing before God. Now, Again, our text in the verse, first verse reads, that the psalmist fainteth for the courts of the Lord, for the living God. Those two lines are parallel. In other words, and this is part of Hebrew poetry, the one line is supposed to match and supposed to mirror the other. The, the old adage is, is that in Hebrew poetry, the, the ideas rhyme more than the words. You have that in our text. The psalmist here is saying that his longing for the courts of the Lord is his longing for God himself and appearing before the Lord. How do we make sense of that? Well, friend, as you think back through your understanding of the Old Testament, there are a couple of texts that probably come readily to mind. Israel was called to appear three times before the Lord. Exodus 34, just as an example. Thrice in the year shall all your men appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. That's the language, but what were these three times in the year? Of course, it's whenever all of Israel came, first to the tabernacle in Shiloh, and then later on after the building of the temple to Zion in Jerusalem to worship God, to appear before God. Was to appear in the public worship of God. The two were one and the same. And so when the psalmist here says that he's longing for the courts of the Lord, longing to appear before God, he is longing to be in the presence of God in public worship. Again, in Psalm 42, you have that sentiment very clearly given to us. The psalmist asks, When shall I come and appear before God? And just afterward, he says, with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. The psalmist longs to be before God in public worship. I know that I'm belaboring the point, but this is so very crucial. The psalmist has an affection for the Lord God that leads him to long to be found in, his, in the Lord's public assemblies. And what this teaches us then, beloved, these first four verses is that it... it It's not just that David longed to be with the Lord. It teaches us instead that the godly crave, crave public worship. The godly crave public worship. And I I recognize that in our generation, in 21st century evangelicalism, what I've just said really causes consternation. But that's precisely what the psalmist is setting before us. He is setting before us a heart that is earnest, In longing to come before the Lord in the public assembly. And I want us to examine that affection in three ways. I want us to see how the psalmist looks at worship as an essential good, first of all. Secondly, as an effective good. And then finally, as an everlasting good. And so take, first of all, that the psalmist sees the public worship of God as an essential good. He says here, how amiable are thy tabernacles. Again, the first verse. The word amiable, of course, means that it is something the psalmist regards as being lovely or delightsome. It's something that he delights in. But I want you to recognize, beloved, that this is not simply a statement about what worship does. This is a statement about what worship is. In other words, this is something about the intrinsic value of worship. Now, what do we make of that? Well, I think perhaps to understand this clearly, allow me to take you back to the Old Testament just again and think about Old Testament worship. Envision it if you can. You remember that in the Old Covenant administration, beauty, that is the aesthetics of worship, were highly emphasized. Uh, just to give you an example, take what you have in Second Chronicles with regard to the vestments. Thou shalt sorry, with Exodus, rather thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. Old Testament worship was to be aesthetically pleasing, it was to be a beautiful thing, and then you come to the building of the temple it 's the same thing, second chronicles Solomon garnished the house with precious stones for beauty, and so whenever the Old Testament worshiper he, they came into the tabernacle or they came into the temple. They were struck, or they ought to have been struck, with pictures of beauty and glory. As much as, much as the artisan could, could affect it, that was the purpose of the precious stones, the gold, all of those things. It was to impress upon the worshiper that to approach God something something they were to regard as beautiful. The courts of the temple we read in the scriptures were, were actually filled with trees as well, planted, This was a picture of beauty and a picture of liveliness. It was a picture of of cleanliness. It was a picture, and it was also a smell of beauty. You think of the holy place. Of course, only the Levite could go into that part of the tabernacle and that part of the temple. But what did they see there? Well, they saw, again, a very similar picture, something ornate and beautiful carvings and tapestry of the finest quality. And so, beloved, when you think of what you have in Ezra, when the second temple foundations are laid and, it, and that generation that was there that, that saw the first temple in all of its glory, that, that when they wept, when they saw the, the apparent meanness of the second temple, you might understand Why? It was a beautiful thing to approach God. But there was a temptation in that. A temptation to which Israel succumbed. In Jeremiah's day, this beauty, this eagerness to approach God for those kinds of of tertiary, superficial reasons induced those generations to cry, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord even while they had no interest in God. They could appreciate the ritual. They could appreciate the beauty, but they had no interest in God. And you find this again in Isaiah as well. The Lord says of that generation, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. And yet he says this was a generation that was hypocritical. They enjoyed the ritual. They enjoyed the external beauty, but they did not take delight in the Lord. Is our psalmist of that kind? Well, beloved, you bring yourself back to the second verse, and you see there that the psalmist in our text is very different than those hypocritical generations. In the second verse, the psalmist says that he longs, faints for the courts of the Lord. Why? Because his heart and his flesh cries out for the living God. Why does the man want to be in public worship? Because he longs to meet there with the Lord. He's not there simply to fill space. He's not there simply to, to check a religious checkbox. His longing to be in public worship is because of his longing to know and to walk with the Lord. In other words, what you have in this text then is a clear picture that this desire for worship is in fact the man's desire for God. Now, I know that this is a bit of a lengthier point, but allow me me just to press forward here. What the psalmist is teaching us here is that public worship is an intrinsic good because this is how souls approach unto God. Public worship is a good because here... Divine glory is especially manifest. And friend, you have to ask the question, how is that so? How can it be that the God who fills all things is specially present in the worship of his people? I mean, Solomon asked that question. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. So how can the psalmist say that that these are the courts of the Lord, that the tabernacles or the dwellings of God are the very courts that he's longing to approach? How can he say that of a God who is infinite? Well, friend, we have to make a distinction here. Just the very selfsame distinction that Solomon makes. That God's essential presence is infinite. But in public worship, In public worship, his gracious presence and manifestation is unique. That, beloved, we see time and again in the scriptures. And I want us to see that just very briefly. We see that as in public worship, the glory of God is especially manifest. Psalm 29. The psalmist says, It is in his temple that everyone speaks of the Lord's glory. Now, he's just given to us a picture, you remember in Psalm 29, of all the fabric of creation, but he says it's in the temple, in the place of public worship that God's glory is especially manifest. The idea is also given to us in Psalm 27 that we sang. One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Where does he see the beauty of the Lord? In the public worship of God. We can go further. We have thought of thy loving kindness O God in the midst of thy temple. The psalmist says. There the graciousness of God he says is specially manifest. So glory is especially revealed in the public assembly. Activity. The activity of God. God working among his people is especially glorious here but but if you will permit me, we'll come back to that in just a moment. The third element here is that this is the place, this is the means that God has specially chosen by his election to be the principal element, illustration or element, to draw his people to himself. The Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither shalt thou come, he says, to the church underage. He'll put his name in the place of public worship. You remember what Solomon says as well, that thine eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, even toward the place which thou hast said, my name shall be there. His name is placed on the public assembly. And in the Old Testament, that was principally in the temple at Zion. And so in Psalm 87, the Lord's, were told, loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. It is the public assembly that God delights in most. Yes, private worship is a wonderful thing. Family worship is a wonderful thing. But it's the gates of Zion where the gathered people of God are found in worship that God loves most of all. Now, friend, I know that I have just quoted to you from the Old Testament and you're probably wondering, well, is that the case for the new covenant believer? Is it true that in our generation today, there is left open to us the courts of the Lord? Where the glory and the beauty of the Lord is to be seen. Where, where we can approach unto God. Where God has placed his name there. The answer, of course, as you could probably guess, is in the affirmative. I know I've quoted this text before, but, but friend, it's given to us explicitly in 1 Corinthians. You remember that in that text, in 1 Corinthians 14, the apostle brings to the church at Corinth that wonderful argument, that wonderful argument that though you have all of these extraordinary gifts, it is the preaching of the word of God in the public assembly through which the glory of God is most manifest. He puts it to us this way. He says, If therefore the whole church become together into one place, and there come in one that believeth not, under prophesying he shall fall down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. This is what the apostle says. I I recognize that in our generation we've we've misused the Old Testament in so many ways. We don't even see the parallel. But, But do you see what the apostle is saying? The apostle is saying that God is found among his people in the public assembly. And that even the unbeliever, under God's grace, may be led to see that very truth. Well, that's a New Testament truth. The public worship of God is not simply about a lecture, or coming to hear about religious ideas, or to sing religious songs. The apostle says, there you will see God. There you will find, and the world will be able to say that God dwells in your midst. We can press forward because there's so much here. Beloved, Christ himself tells us this. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You remember in Matthew 18, he's talking about a constituted meeting of the church. Yes, of course, for church discipline, but it should not be restricted in that way. It belongs to all constituted gatherings of God's people. He says, I am in the midst of you there. Note he doesn't say just with one. Christ was making a very crucial point. In the public assembly, Christ is specially to be found. And then if you even look at the Great Commission, you see this as well. Christ turns to his disciples and he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And then this, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. World. Now, friend, I want you to recognize here that this is a general promise. But it's a promise that belongs specifically to the ministration that Christ here commands. Teaching and baptizing. And when he says then, lo, I am with you always, he's saying, lo, I am with you in that ministration. It is not a general promise as often folks use it. It's quite specific to the command previously enjoined. In the ministration of the gospel, in the ordinances of the gospel, Christ is specially present and he will be to the end. And beloved, looking at the clock, I recognize that I don't have as much time as I'd like. But allow me to press forward just a little bit further. In this, beloved, you and I are supposed to see then that the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is not... That God ceases to dwell in the public worship of his people in the new. That's how often many people treat it. That's not the case at all. No, what the difference is, is that instead of going to a single place where God has placed his name, now right through the outer aisles, the public worship of God may be enjoyed. No longer at Zion only, but right throughout the earth. And this is precisely what was promised. In that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, Not in Zion only. In the new covenant, there will be a place for the worship of God in Egypt. And the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow vow unto the Lord and perform it. All of that is the language of worship, but in Egypt. From the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Note what he says there in Malachi. He says it's part of the new covenant that there, in every place, the worship of God might be found. That's the only difference, beloved. That and the fact that in the glory of Christ, As we sit on this side of revelation, beloved, we have a clearer picture of the glory of God. I'll just note briefly that that last text that I've quoted to you, Malachi one eleven, is lifted by the apostle in 1 1 Timothy 2, where there the apostle says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. What's interesting about that text, beloved, is the word there, men, is not mankind but men as opposed to women. And so what he's saying here is that I will, just as Malachi had promised, I will that in the public assembly of God's people, everywhere, not just in Jerusalem, but everywhere, men would be in in prayer. Now, beloved, as we warm to a conclusion here, if all of this is so, if in the new covenant the courts of the Lord are open to us, Do we see the intrinsic value of worship? Do we? I ask that as your pastor, but I also ask that as somebody who occupies the same generation. I'd submit to you that this is a generational failing. Beloved, you and I, in the world in which we live, we are habitually led away from seeing these truths. Do we see something divine? in the public assembly. Secondly, and very briefly, the psalmist here sees the public worship of God as an effective good. You'll know that he brings out the image of the sparrow. The sparrow hath found in house. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. You can either see the sparrow as something like the psalmist himself. If you remember Psalm 102, the psalmist likens himself to such. Or, and I think more accurately, you can see this As the psalmist reflecting on the bird that has lodged in one of the trees planted in the temple courts, and he longs for that bird's position. In other words, he longs to be close to the public assembly. I want you to notice he longs to be close to the public assembly and also that his family would be as well. The sparrow and her young are nested near the altars. If he's longing to be like the bird, he's longing that his family would be like hers as well. In other words, beloved, what you have here is a picture that in the courts of God, you have vitality, you have life. And he even reiterates that at the very beginning of the fourth verse. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. The word blessed there means these ones have been made recipients of the greatest good they are those who are truly blessed and so this text teaches us beloved that public worship is under divine blessing an instrument to good it is an instrument to good i'll just recall for a moment what solomon prays in first kings 8 he prays that the lord god would hearken to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people israel when they shall pray toward this place here you have this here you have solomon reminding The congregation and praying to God that the Lord would make this effective, the courts of the Lord effective for his people's good. And you see this existentially in Psalm 73. You remember the psalmist says, My steps had well nigh slipped as he was envious of the foolish when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. But what changed him? Why did he not fall? Well, he says that he envied the wicked until he went into the sanctuary of God. The worship of God was an effective good to his soul. In the New Testament, it's the same. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And beloved, if you remember back to First Corinthians 14, it was in the public assembly. That sinner was led to see his sinfulness, to seek remedy in Christ, and to extol the God of glory who dwelt in his church. We can go a step further. I just briefly remember in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle turns to these churches and he says to them, Before your eyes, Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth. Crucified among you. They weren't at Jerusalem. They weren't at Calvary. So how was it that Christ was set before them? Of course it was, as the apostle then explains in the following verses, through the hearing of faith. It was in the public proclamation and public worship of God that Christ was especially seen. And so friend, here you have the scriptures teaching us that this is how you see Christ. This is how the people of God are fixed, as it were, back upon the Lord after their wanderings away from him in heart. And so when we cry out for the grace of God, when we plead for quickening grace, but we neglect the public assembly. Beloved, it's it's easy for us to see that we're very much like the child, pleading for food, but refusing to come to the table. God has promised that his blessing will be found here as those worship in spirit and in truth. And so if we want his grace, and beloved, we're like the recalcitrant child, asking for more, but refusing to come to the table that's already been furnished. Thirdly and finally, beloved, in the fourth verse, you have this truth. That those who are found in the assembly of God, that they will be still praising me. Something I suppose we could quickly overlook. But what the psalmist here is teaching us is that in the public assembly, you have the grounds for what is everlasting praise. In other words, worship begets worship. Worship. There are a few truths that come from this. Uh, First of all, beloved, you recognize that the psalmist is saying that these ones clearly acknowledge that they have not yet exhausted the glory and the honor of God. They will be praising night and day, and still God is more glorious and more worthy so as to receive even more praise. You also recognize that in this text, there's something of eternity stamped in it. This is a picture of those who are, as it were, preparing themselves for the life to come. As they are praising still, beloved, this is, as it were, the training ground it will best fit them for heaven. That's the idea. It is that public worship is a means to induce lasting praise. And so we close, though so much more could be said with really two questions. The first is one of examination. Beloved, as we look at Psalm eighty-four, we find that the scriptures teach to us that that a truly godly affection will always be kindled toward the public assembly. And I know, I know that in our generation that's quite foreign to us. But beloved Either the scriptures are the standard of piety or our sentiments are. Either the scriptures are the standard of godliness or our opinions. Here, the scriptures are very clear. It is the public worship of God that the psalmist longs to meet most with the Lord in. The Lord may use other means, and the psalmist will acknowledge that. But true godliness incorporates this longing. And so it asks the question, is this, is this found in me? But there's a second question that's very crucial. And beloved, this is more for us. Um, I know that I'm preaching, as it were, to the choir. The psalmist is approaching the courts of God for God's sake. He's not here simply to fill space and time. His longing here is not because he enjoys singing. It's not because he enjoys thinking religious thoughts. He's not going there to learn about God. He's going there to meet God. And that is the question that you and I have to ask ourselves every Lord's Day and every Wednesday. Am I going there to meet Him? If the answer is in the affirmative, then, beloved, our preparation will be very different. If our answer is in the affirmative, it will be very hard for us to be kept from the place of worship. Only the hardest of providences will keep us away. But there is comfort in this text, and it's on this note that we close. The psalmist here shows to us so very clearly that none who worship in spirit and in truth will go away empty-handed. Note again what he says in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, it's a picture of liveliness, of blessing, of peace. In verse 4, it's this promise of blessing to those who worship right. Beloved, our preparation will always be poor. Our worship will always be mingled with much dross. But the psalmist says that if there is if there is sincerity in the worshiper, the man will know, the woman will know God's blessing. And that is to incentivize us to be present. Every time there is an opportunity to worship God as a congregation, the Lord's Day morning, the Lord's Day evening, the midweek prayer meeting. Beloved, this psalm reminds us that, this, that such assembly should be our desire. And it should be so because our longing is to be with the Lord where he will most clearly be found. Amen.